is the conservatory area and it leads into the kind of main dining room area. Um, we haven't actually done an awful lot with this room. Um, yeah. It's a lovely bright room uh, and I think it'll probably end up being our, our cafe and dining room and performance space as well because music is going to be a huge part of what we're doing in this bar. For this episode of the North Coast 500 podcast, we're in East Sutherland and we're having a bit of a nosy round McGregor's Bar in Goldsby. It's only just opened and it's a sister establishment to the award-winning McGregor's in Inverness, so we thought we'd stop by and catch up with its owner, local traditional music legend, Bruce McGregor. I'm Penny Stewart. And I'm Dan Holland. And coming up on this episode of the North Coast 500 podcast, as well as catching up with Bruce, Penny gets to discover Sutherland in a glass. It's a delightful whiskey. There's, there's different mm. sweetnesses in it. Yeah, I could quite happily sit and, and, and sip that all day, but I, I better not. Many's a time <laughs> I have. <laughs> if you like your single malt, do not disappear. Plus, I'll be visiting a Scottish castle with a bit of a twist. A castle that wouldn't look out of place in the Loire Valley. It's a real surprise. Um, and A pleasant I, surprise, hopefully. It, it's amazing. <laughs> And you're going to be blown away by a bit of this. When you're working with glass and when you're working really well with glass, you don't force it. You have to work with it. It's a super cooled liquid. It's molten hot and it's runny like honey. All of that to look forward to. But first things first, Bruce McGregor. What are you doing in Gulsby? Well, a lot of people have asked <laughs> us about that because when we started off the whole idea for McGregor's, it was that the bar was going to be, the model was going to be in Inverness and we were going to take that model and we were going to put it all around the world. And we were looking at Edinburgh and Glasgow and Aberdeen, Perth, Dundee, all the major cities. And then we went to Gulsby and everyone went, what on earth? Why? <laughs> uh, it was a bit of a, a left field decision. But we looked at all the properties in Edinburgh and Glasgow, the, the market is saturated um, and we thought what is it that makes us so different and it's being from the Highlands, we are a Highland brand. There's a lovely sense of familiarity coming into here if you've been into McGregor's and Inverness and I can't help but notice a, a picture on the wall yeah. which is also in Inverness. What's the story? Well the story was I wanted a picture by John Byrne. I've always loved his artwork and I was speaking to Joe and I said, I've tried phoning him, I've tried getting in touch with him, I can't get anything. And she said, you'll never be able to afford him anyway. Forget it, I've got somebody else. This guy called Ross Muir. And uh, she'd met Ross um, years before. Uh, he was a young, struggling artist. He'd, he makes quite open about it that he had a, a major problem with uh, drugs and art was his way out of it. And <clears throat> He started doing these, these pictures, I think you, you might well have seen them, they're called the Van Gogh or Square Go. They are some out, incredible so. Yeah. So he, he was doing that kind of work and I thought, yeah, that seems quite cool. I'd, I'd only seen one or two of them and Joe said, look, we're looking for a picture of Rob Roy McGregor, but we don't want one of these tired, cliched pictures of him with a deer over his shoulder or anything like that. We want it in the style of John Byrne. And he went, yeah, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> and he produced that for us. I won't tell you how much it cost because it, it, it <laughs> because it wasn't very much. He was, you know, he was just getting started. And about a year later, his pictures were being bought by the likes of Lionel Messi, um, and they were going for hundreds of thousands of pounds. So that is not an original. Uh, the original has <laughs> is safely squiddled away somewhere. 
but we just love it. It's one of those things. People come in and go, whoa, who's that? Why is that? And it's like, well, Rob Roy McGregor is kind of one of our ambassadors, our, you know, the, the people, our legends. And uh, it just gets people talking. And it's the same, I mean, we've got the quote there as well uh, on the wall. Well, there's leaves in the forest and foam in the river. McGregor, despite them, shall flourish forever. And our motto, you'll see it everywhere, is despite them. And everyone goes, what's that about? Who are you fighting? But it actually comes from that, that quote, uh, from that poem by Sir Walter Scott. And it's all to do with the McGregor clan being outlawed for over a century um, and being totally persecuted. In fact, Rob Roy McGregor signed his name as a Campbell for quite some time. Uh, so that's, that was all part of it. And I think that's our statement, actually. When people say that, despite them, they kind of go, this place has got history and culture ingrained in it. It's not just a business. We are actually so immersed in, in our culture and history here. Now, I always think one of the best ways to also get immersed in, uh, in culture is through whiskey. Why? Well, because each whiskey is utterly individual and a product entirely distinct according to where it's from. 95% of the whiskey produced at Kleinisch Distillery, just up the road from here in Brora, goes to make the famous Johnny Walker blended whiskey. 5% is saved and sold as a rather special single malt. Ian Sutherland gave me a tour of the Kleinisch Distillery and I persuaded him to let me have a wee taste too. Ian, you've brought me to the most amazing space. Where, where are we in Kleinleash? This is a beautiful room. This is our bar and tasting room. Um, obviously with a, a view, a spectacular view looking north uh, along the coast from Brora. The distillery goes back 200 years, or just over 200 years. Um, if you look to the left, you'll see the old warehouses. That was the original Kleinleash distillery. And Kleinleash basically comes from Scots Gaelic and it means uh, green place or green pastures. And if you look around, you can see everything is, is well, it's starting to come green now because we're, we're into early March. Um, this was an ideal place uh, to locate a distillery. So 200 years old, when did the relationship with Johnny Walker start up? The earliest records we've got um, of uh, doing trade with Johnny Walker. There's a log book uh, which I can show to you and there's transactions from 1908. Should we go and have a bit of a look? I'd love to, love to have a bit of a tour. Yes, we'll go. Now this is the entrance to what we call our story room, which is quite a magical room. And as you can see, there's a timeline uh, dating from 1819 when the distillery was first built and taking us all the way down to the present day or at least to the year 2020 when this new visitor centre was constructed. Now this bookcase, as interesting as it is, is actually going to open up. Oh, it's a secret door. And it takes us, <laughs> takes us into a secret room. Oh, love it. This is called our story room. Uh -huh. What I'm going to do now is bring it to life. How exciting, the lights have all changed. Now, if you look around the walls, you'll see uh, some alcoves and they've all got um, some lovely uh, gold representations of uh, local iconic items. 
Um, I'm just going to put this gold key that you see here into the table. And with this gold key, we'll try and unlock some of the history and the mystery that is Klein Leash. I must describe what's just happened there. As you turn the key, the table, which occupies the centre of the room, Ian, the whole centre of the table lifted up. And now, in front of me, I've got a whole lot of... Oh, boxes. Boxes. I was thinking it, it looks a bit like a big advent calendar that has popped up in front of me. And it's got things that say things like emblem, flavour, whiskey, wildcat, map. Highland home. I'm completely intrigued. That's. <laughs> I'm not going to uh, open any further boxes um, because we're going to keep that secret because you're going to have to come back and come on tour <gasps> to see it. But what I can show you, as I said, is this. This is a replica, obviously, of this logbook. So that's the first recorded transaction between Kleinleash Distillery and John Walker and Sons. And it is in. It's in. Tiny writing. <clears throat> beautiful, tiny copper plate writing. It is beautiful, ever so delicately done. So small, it's almost difficult for me to see, but that says bonding date, 4th of May maybe, I think? Cask? Second, second full cask. And that was a start. Right, well, let's continue the tour, since you've just teased me with this and told me I can't stay and play. Let's see what else there is. Okie doke. And this is the mash house. Wow, that smell hits you the moment you come in, doesn't yeah, it? What you're smelling there is malted barley. And because the stillhouse door is open, <laughs> you're getting the double smell of the, of the distillation as well. It's an interesting mix of a, there's, a, there's a, a sort of sweet and sour thing almost going on. You've got a slight bitterness, but there's a sweetness there as well. I love that smell. Now I love this it. Uh, magnificent piece of apparatus this is called a marsh tun and this is um, where the barley is mixed with, with warm water and turned into a liquid or marsh and the marsh is cooled down and put into these magnificent marsh tins as we call them and they're large containers these are made of Oregon pine and you can see they're banded with uh, iron and has this process Ian stayed the same pretty much from the beginning? These processes are very traditional, and yes, they have. Obviously, the size of the, the mash tins, the size of everything gets larger and larger to increase capacity, but uh, the basic principles remain exactly the same as they were 200 years ago. So how long does that fermentation process take? Well, in a lot of distilleries, it's, it's generally about 40 to 45 hours, but here, our fermentation lasts up to 85 hours. The longer you ferment, basically the sweeter the liquid becomes. So at the end of this process, what you have in effect is a, is a flat, sweet beer, and then we turn that beer into Ushkeba. So what intrigues me, we've, we've come back into the, um, the bar area here, Ian, what, what really intrigues me is that whiskey is made of, you know, those three 
ingredients, and yet all whiskey seems to taste so different. There's, there's some old sayings in, in, in the whiskey industry, and you know, a very traditional, a slightly cheesy one maybe is, today is rain, is tomorrow's whiskey. And a lot of whiskey, yes, it's all made from the three basic ingredients, but uh, a lot of it comes down to people and place as well. Obviously, there's, there's slightly different organic materials in, in, in different fields of barley and in different sources of water. Do these have any effect? Possibly. Do we know? Maybe. Um, as I said, there's a science to it, but there's also a mystery to it. Tell me then, what are the characteristics that make Kleinleash Kleinleash? Well, I'm just going to um, open this bottle. That's one of the loveliest sounds on earth. And this um, is about to be the next one. I'm just going to pour you a little dram. If you have a little nose of that. It's quite a pale it's, whiskey. Yeah. It's not a dark one. It's a, a, there's a light golden straw colour to it. It's, um, obviously, it's not a, a, a peated whiskey. Um, our barley is air dried. Its nose should be a light candle wax with some sugar, a, flat, a faint maybe floral fragrance. Some, a lot of people say they can smell tropical fruits. It's just coming to this time of year actually when, when the local, uh, the broom uh, starts to flower and you get that yellow flower on the mm. local broom and you get that quite a cloying, sweet, it's almost marzipan smell. Uh, that reminds me of, of Kleinleash. Now you say marzipan, having a sniff of it, I'm definitely getting that. There's definitely a sweetness, really, a real sweetness on the nose. Well, I'm going to have a little taste of this. It's best served either neat or with a little water. It coats the mouth. And is that the waxiness? That's your, that's your waxiness that you're, you're, you're sensing there. It's, it's not, we try and, you know, it's not a smell of wax smoke or anything like that. It's actually, it's the feeling that you're getting off it. It you, hangs on your palate. Yes, you get a, a, a sweetness and it does hold in your mouth. It does hold. Um, it hasn't got that, that big kind of punch of some some whiskies, this feels lighter and honey, You've, honeyish. You're hitting the, hitting the nail on the head. <laughs> yeah, honey. It's a delightful whisky. There's there's different mm. sweetnesses in it. Yeah, I could quite happily sit and, and, and sit that all day, but I, I better not. Many's the time I have. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, it has been an absolute delight seeing around the, the distillery. I'm not sure I'm any closer to finding out the secret of what makes Klein Leash Klein Leash. But it's, it's just this place, isn't it? It's beautiful. Penn was at Klein Leash in Brora. If you want to book a tour, head for malts.com and look up Klein Leash on the distillery's drop-down menu. Now, are you familiar with Klein Leash, Bruce? As a... As a, as a drum? As a nip? No, I'm not, actually. Um, I've got to be honest, I have smelt it and I have tasted it, but not... I wouldn't be able to... You know, identify it out of a crowd of a hundred well, uh, because I'm, I'm still I'm an enthusiastic um, beginner really when it comes to whiskey. I love it, but I'm not a Charles McLean. Well, we are in a bar, and you have a bottle in your hands of 14-year-old Klein Leash, and I'm I'd like you guys to have a little a kind of sniff of it. Dan, in particular, 
because he's not a fan of of whiskey but I'm always saying this one will convert you Dan honestly but I think it's a really it's a light one it's got a as I was saying to Ian I think it's got a honey to it it's got a golden color of honey but it smells very smooth (laughs) it's good do you know what (laughs) maybe that is the one Mm -hmm. it's really smooth you try that Bruce it's very smooth I find personally, and I'm not a whiskey drinker, there's quite a lot of burn, but there's very little burn with that, I find. Yeah, that's lovely. It, it, it is really is absolutely nice. lovely. And, and you've just tasted it without, you know, I would normally let it open up with a drop of water. You've just had that neat, and you haven't pulled a face. No, no. no. <laughs> it did look like he was kind of kickstarting his whole body, my dear. There was a kind of little reaction to it there. I was, do you know what? I was waiting. I was anticipating it, and I didn't get that sense of taste that I get when I try whiskey before. I think it's a lovely soft, yeah, soft it really is. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's gorgeous. Bruce, how important is it for for you for the business that you showcase local food, local drink? Is that part of your ethos? Oh, absolutely! It's absolutely what we are about from start to finish. Um, everything we do in Inverness, all the meat is supplied locally from a local butcher. The, the veg as far as possible comes from local suppliers. Uh, the fish, we know which boat it comes in from. It's the same in, here in Goldsby. Um, we have the local fishermen and we have the local butcher supplying us with uh, the, the vital ingredients. I do always see food and drink as really being connected through stories to a particular place. You're world renowned as a, a traditional um, musician. How much do you see your traditional music as connected through stories to a particular place? It's absolutely everything. Everything. The way I was taught by Donald Riddle, um, he was an amazing gentleman, lived just outside of Inverness, but he was a pipe major, Gaelic speaker, Welsh speaker, uh, a violinist as well as a fiddle teacher. But every lesson, every tune started with the story of where the tune was from. You know, whether it was a a tune of emigration, whether it was a tune of war, whether it was a tune of celebration, or just a little bit about the composer, but everything was about the story. And that's really what we've continued on with Blazing Fiddles. The stories are part of it, letting people know what it's all about. The reason reason Blazing Fiddles is called Blazing Fiddles is because fiddles were burnt in the Highlands as part of a um, religious uh, (laughs) persecution of... of, uh, culture. Um, so that's where Blazing Fiddles comes from and that has been the kind of drive for for us to do that but the stories are absolutely vital. Anyone who's seen the band knows that they're going to get a fair bit of chat as, as well. So I mean we were talking about whiskey and whiskey is very known for its regionality and we talked about food and you're using food from the area. How much regionality and regional identity is there across the broad spectrum of yeah. Scottish traditional music? There's not as much as there was. I mean, when Donald Riddle told me that at one stage you would have been able to hear 30 different styles in Scotland, now you're looking at East Coast, West Coast, Shetland, Orkney, Borders, really. So you're looking at five, but it's your accent, it's the way you play. So when you get to the West Coast, you'll hear people and it's maybe a little bit more gentle and it flows a little bit more like that. And the East Coast, you know, if you're going right out to the, the, the Far East and to, to Aberdeenshire there, and the Doric is really strong, and it's quite, 
quite clipped and I'm kind of stuck in the middle of Inverness so it's a meeting point so I've got a little bit of the east and a little bit of the west mixed up in, in there so you can definitely hear it. I love that idea of your playing having an accent. I've never yeah. never thought about it, never, never, but now I'll be listening for it. Yeah, I, absolutely. I used to listen to people playing and try and work out what their personality was like before I met them. And because you can tell a person's personality by the way they play traditional music. You can tell if they're uptight, you can tell if they are lazy, you can tell, <laughs> you know, just by listening to that. that and I think fascinating. Oh, it is. It's, it's really scary for people if they don't realise that's what I'm sitting there doing. <laughs> you're not listening to the tune, you're not listening to the composition, you're just going, what are you it's like? deep psychology going on. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, I do find it really interesting. Now, the whole point of the North Coast 500 podcast is to encourage you to pause and make the most out of your trip, spend some more time in an area. So on my journey north, I did exactly that, and I stopped in Tame, which is where I discovered something truly magical, the remarkable glass storm. Brodie Nairn gave me the tour. That is the sound of... 1,200 degrees centigrade, Brodie? Close. <laughs> it's, about, it's, a, it's about 1,300 degrees. Yeah, it's hot. Very hot. Wow, the heat. It's nice. I mean, it's, not, it's nice, yeah. It'd be nice to be working here in the winter. Oh yeah, yeah but it's, I'm, it's kind of warm in the I'm, summer. I'm, I'm, I'm standing a metre and a bit away yeah. from that. And Wearing the perfect synthetic clothes, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> standing right in front of one but, thing. <laughs> we're in the workshop at Glassstorm. Yep. One of your colleagues has just put some glass on a blowing tube. What do you call so this? It's called a blowing iron. Here we have Kat, who's one of our resident glass blowers, and she's shaping up the glass. The glass is 1,120 degrees hot. And, you know, we might have state-of-the-art furnace, have a furnace that phones me and talks to me and tells me what's happening, but the tools that we actually use to shape the glass and manipulate the glass, they they haven't changed in 2,000 years. Kat has got the glass on the end of the blowing iron, the yeah. blowing iron and is using what looks like a sort of a, a cupped bowl, which she's dipping yeah. into water to keep it cool, and then very gently rolling the glass within this cup. And is that helping to shape it and thin it? That's right. Or? So the wooden blocks, <clears throat> they help to shape it. And she's using these metal jacks that look like instruments of torture, big sort of knives, and she's just guiding it actually. She's she's helping persuade the glass in which direction she wants it to go so she can set it up and get the right shape because when you're working with glass and when you're working really well with glass, you don't force it, you have to work with it. It's a super cooled liquid, it's molten hot and it's runny like honey. So if you force it, it's gonna, it's gonna, it doesn't like that. Kat's now going to present this molten hot gob of glass to this mold. You can see timing is everything. Ross is here on the tools. And you put some compressed air down the, yeah. the tube into the glass. And this is total teamwork. You know, you have to work together. Everything is about timing because in these vital few seconds, this is where the molten hot glass takes shape to make this beautiful object that you're just about to see. Ross is gently just tapping this mold and there, 
Isn't that beautiful? A bottle has come out. So that's right. So we've gone from it being a very soft, molten hot gob of glass to now being an actual finished product. And it's taken on the form. In this case, it's a bottle. These guys work together as a tight team. You know, Cat needs Ross to, to get his timings just right and vice versa. They know what they're doing. There's little nods and winks that I've observed and they just quietly move and everything is precision. And watching, even watching how Ross handled the bottle after Cat had broken the end off it or yep. snipped the end off it, yep. forgive my terminology, but he very gently, I mean, it was like someone handling a baby. <laughs> well, you know, you, a lot of t care needs to be taken. The glass is forgiving up to a point, but it's molten hot one minute, and it's super uh, cold and hard and sharp the next minute. So you are having to take a duty of care when you're working with it. The reason the guys don't aren't talking is because they're in their zone, they know what they're required to do, and they're, they're going through the motions. They've been doing this all morning. It's like a dance. So in here is our polishing department. And what we do in here is we take the, the products that we've, we've shown from the grinding and cutting department, we bring them in here, and you can see Billy's here, he's marked up a bottle here. Each one of these pen marks has to be removed, and we'll go through this stage called F, and then I'll move on to FF, and then finally the jeweler's rouge, which is the pink stage down here. By the time we get to there, we're really polishing this object like a gem. Yeah. You know, and it'll shine absolutely brilliant. So when we have a look in this, this station here, what do you see, Dan? I can see I can see clay yeah. actually here. So this, this is looks more like a, a, feel of that. a potter's. It's quite coarse, isn't it? it? Is There's a little bit of little bit of coarseness, coarseness to, it. to that. But you're right, it's like a clay and it's a, a bit sticky and a bit wet, yeah. a bit damp. This is pulverized rock. This is called pumice. Yeah. So in this first stage, the pumice is a bit coarse as you said, and this will take away the kind of the rough lines. When we move on to the next stage, we've got if you feel that that's that's more that's finer. That's, much smoother. That looks like a, an unset cement almost, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, much smoother to the touch. So this is the this is the second stage of polishing and which really starts to become uh, it starts to let the glass shine its brilliance at this stage. And then in the fi very final stage, we're, we're polishing using this jeweler's rouge and it basically just feels like milk or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. I want to ask you, Brody, about light. Mm -hmm. Because looking in the North Coast Glass Gallery here, there are some beautiful pieces of glass with some really wonderful colours in them. There's sort of deep blues, there's navies, there's lime greens, reds. Is that a rose, rose a sort of colour? Aurora rose, Aurora yeah. rose. And even with the sun that's coming through just now, I can see how the light 
is moving through the glass in the different colours. And we're really lucky in the Highlands, mm. around the North Coast region, for the light we have. It inspires artists and photographers. How do you, do you think about the way light will go through the piece of glass when you're making it, when you're designing it? What stage does that come into it? Well, I think it's essential. I mean, glass, and especially the lead-free crystal that we use, it eats light, but in equal measures, it's, it refracts and spits the light back out. And depending on the design and the percent, depending on the cuts that we've put into it, that can really make something sing. And you can see here with these decanters, you know, the light is bent and refracted and it just looks beautiful. You know, look at the light play in this bowl here. You just want to, it's like a, a bowl of black liquid you want to and, dive into. It, it's, it feels like it's sucking, yeah. sucking everything in, doesn't it? But then underneath it, mm -hmm. the way the light is reflecting on the, this is quite a thick bowl. Yeah. Um, and the way the light is reflecting off the underside of the bowl, back down onto the glass shelf, is, it's really incredible the way it does play with light. And that's part of the charm of, of working with the glasses. That, and one of the things that I find so beautiful and elusive about the glass is the light play. You know? And you're absolutely right. We're, we're blessed here in the Highlands with amazing light at different times of the year. And hopefully, with, certainly with the North Coast Glass range, what we're trying to do is we're trying to capture a bit of that energy and allow the light to play with the glass, dance around it, and sing. Where do you get your inspiration from? Well, I mean, it sounds a bit corny, but the North Coast Glass Range is inspired by our environment, inspired by nature. You know, we live in this beautiful part of the world. And, you know, for example, these glasses here are called the Coast Glasses. And that's inspired by the rugged coastline of Easter Ross. You know, vases here are called droplet vases. So they're you know, you can imagine a dewdrop, um, wavy vases, the waves crashing. So we are definitely inspired by the environment in which we live in. And if you want to find out more, just head for glassstorm.com. I have to say, after hearing that, I cannot wait to visit. It sounds absolutely brilliant. I was seriously jealous of you of you going and doing that. Mind you, I'd have probably spent an absolute fortune yeah. buying glassware. <laughs> you were, do you know, to see Kat and Ross work the glass together as in teamwork, they've got so little time. That's the thing, the glass cools so quickly from 1100, 1200 degrees centigrade. And once it gets down to 700, they have to go and put more heat into it and warm it up. The way they move around the workshop, they know where each other is and what they're doing and how they're doing it. It was, it was really, really lovely to go and see and, and fascinating, I'd say. If Kleinleash draws sort of direct influence from the environment for its whiskey and Brody's drawing inspiration for his glassware from where they're based, what about you, Bruce, and your music? Where do you... What inspires you about this particular landscape on the East Coast when you're writing music, when you're thinking about music? It's got to be the elements of the, the coastline itself, actually. I think the beaches are absolutely stunning along here. The drive, I think, 
is absolutely stunning. You know, as you come into Golsby, uh, just across the Dornach Bridge there, every time I go past it, I'm sitting there going, I could be, you know, I could be somewhere else in the world. This doesn't look like Scotland in a lot of places. It's just, it is absolutely gorgeous. And I think that's, that inspires you. you. You feel like you've also slowed down a little bit, you know, when you're going up there, it's like when you're in Inverness, it is a city and it's bustling and it's moving about. You go to Golsby and we had one night up there, our opening night actually, where we had music and it felt like we were, we'd gone back in maybe 30 years. Everybody in the community was there. People had joined in playing the spoons, people were up dancing, people were singing around the <laughs> piano and it felt like a real, a proper Cayley from when I was much younger. And I love that. That is actually so exciting, actually, that that community spirit is still alive. Um, so I think that's going to be an inspiration for, for writing music for, and, and performing music as well. Well, while Dan was busy in Tain, I decided to pause just a little bit further north of Golsby, where I discovered, tucked off the main road, one of the most romantic-looking castles I think I've ever visited, Dunrobin. Scott Morrison showed me around. Scott, we're standing here at Dunrobin Castle and it's, it's actually a beautiful day, isn't it? Um, yeah, gorgeous day. It's calm. We've got the... I mean, what an aspect it has. We're just right on the shore, really, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, um, well, standing here, we're only 400 yards away from the beach, from, well, from the North Sea, which is nice and calm today. It's not always like that, admittedly. And, and between us and the sea, there's these amazing formal gardens. Yeah, the formal garden, as it is the garden here, it's been pretty much unchanged since 1850, roughly. It was um, Sir Charles Barry, the, an architect who was very famous for being involved in the Houses of Parliament. He was the architect who built a large extension to the castle at that time and laid out the gardens in this um, it's inspired by the gardens of Versailles. It's a French style. Yeah. So this large parterre over to, to the one side, to our left-hand side here, has, um, has been pretty much unchanged for 150 years. And in the centre here, we have Croquet Lawn. It's really lovely in the summertime when we're open to the visitors to watch children and adults play croquet. It's quite fun, and when you're in a setting with this fairy tale sort of castle uh, behind you and you're playing croquet i can i can get the whole uh, why people enjoy doing that so much yeah if, we can't ignore the fact that over on stage left is that is that your falconer yeah when we're open to visitors he's there all day he does two displays every day he has an 11:30 display in the morning and then another one at 2:30 in the afternoon both displays last around about half an hour and he flies sort of three different birds. We're busy looking at the gardens in front of us and not looking <laughs> at the elephant us. in the room, which is <laughs> if we turn around behind us. You know, I, I've lived up in the north of Scotland for many, many years and to my shame now I've come here, I've never been to visit Dunrobin Castle yeah. and it is breathtaking i mean it rises up above us with these fairy tale turrets yeah the first thing that comes to my mind is is chateau rather than castle well that's from from this that's angle exactly it 
it's it's probably as far from a traditional Scottish castle as you will find in Scotland. Um, it was never designed to look like a Scottish castle. It's always been um, that French chateau influence, and it's you know, much of the rooms, many of the rooms that we still have open for viewing, are furnished with French furniture, French tapestries, everything. And you've actually got Sans-Peur. The Sutherland family motto is French, without fear. Without fear. Yeah. So So, so you've got Sans-Peur is is, um, is in in the stonework above Above the main windows windows. there. It's on on the furniture, the Sans-Peur. It's it's without, all through the building, there's there's references and there's that huge French influence. So you've got the, the Versailles gardens and then you have the sort of the, a castle that wouldn't look out of place in the Loire Valley. It's a real surprise um, and a pleasant I, surprise hopefully. It, it's amazing, <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Let's, let's head on in and have yeah, a nosy. Yeah, of course, wait. let's do that. As, as castles go, this, this is probably not one of the most spectacular entrance halls that you'll see. But it's, I mean, this was never the Sutherland family's main residence. When this, was, when this part of the building was built here, this was more of a Highland retreat. It was never about showing off, if, well, maybe it was, but, uh, but it, was, it was never that kind of a place. So we, we go out of our way quite a lot to make it feel like it is a home because it is still owned by the Sutherland family, it's still owned by the Earl of Sutherland, who still has a private apartment in the castle. They still come here, they they still visit. They have a huge um, involvement with the the operation and and the running of the place, and they take real pleasure in the the employment that we have, one of the biggest employers in the area, so. Now this is the drawing room arrive at the castle and you haven't done what we've done and gone to the garden first mm. but you come round and then you have this view from up here you can see you're you're another two stories elevated from where we were originally looking out off the terrace and it, it feels unexpected oh, um you know it, it's tucked yeah. off the the road but only just off the road yeah um but then you're Right on the edge of the water here, and there's just there's so much drama here. If I um, flick on, I've not put the lights on in the library here. Just, I was going to say, we've just come into a room full of books. Well, a room full of books, yeah, ten thousand of them. And it's got such a booky smell. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah, it really smells of books. It is. You'd know it's... if you came in here blindfold, you'd you'd know that you were in a a library, and I mean we should say that it's a it's a room full of thousands of books, but they're not, they're not modern books. No. Um, they look very old indeed. Tell me about some of the books that you've got in here. I mean, there's, there's, there's a real mix of books in here. Quite a, quite a lot of them. There's a lot of books in Latin. There's also Greek. Um, there's, there's some books that you go back to 1700s. In the 1700s, most of them, I would say, are probably 1700s. So there's there's um, there's quite a nice collection of of sort of early Scottish law books as well. Um, but it's it's got everything and anything that you can think of. The family, you go you go back sort of, yeah, 50, 60 years, or go go back a couple of generations even, and 
they were incredibly well travelled. One of the, the, the most popular rooms, certainly up in this older part of the castle, is the nursery. You just sort of look at it and you can imagine yourself, yeah, sitting with the toys or, you know, or just being, it's, it's a much lighter, it's a wood panel, but it's, this is, it's an ash wood, so it's a much lighter room as well. And when the sun, when it, when it well, it's not sunny at the moment, but on a, a lovely sunny day, because this faces south and west, it's on the corner of the building. It's a beautiful room, beautiful light room. Full of toys. And there's a, an amazing toy boat, there's a rocking horse, there's the, the, a pram and teddies and uh, a fantastic doll's house. When children come into this room, because we've got play. the ropes, they, they want to duck straight <laughs> underneath the ropes and go and, and you know, grab the toys. And it's, uh, you know, I can, I can understand why they would want to do it. Our seamstress room here, this is our haunted room. This is in the oldest part of the castle. There's a couple of stories for the same ghost. The story that I know about the ghost is here is that the, the Earl of Sutherland captured um, a young girl from the, the clan Mackay, took her back to Dunrobin here and locked her into this room with the idea that he would be able to marry her and then this would bring the clans and this would be the, 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 you know, the, the, the bond that finally brought the, brought the two clans together. But she, of course she refused that um, and then she had, she had taken her sheets and bed sheets, tied them together to try and climb out of the window and to escape. He found out about what she was doing, came into the room and was trying to pull her back in the window. She actually fell to her death and fell outside the castle and fell to her death. But nobody's, nobody's ever seen her. So we have a, a story without a ghost, essentially, but then we have another ghost who walks across the landing on the, on the Cromarty staircase, but nobody's seen him for about probably 50 years or something like that, but nobody knows anything about him. So we've got a story without a ghost and a ghost without a story. Now I've only got, sadly, time for a flying visit today, but if, if someone's coming and, and stopping by, Scott, yep. what kind of time should they allow to really get a decent um, I, look at the place? How much time should they I mean, I, I, I say to a lot of folk, you know, if you, if you can give two hours, to the place because you, if you say 45 minutes to have a wander around the castle um, and then if you say there's the falconry show half an hour you have the gardens to wander around and we haven't, I haven't mentioned the museum we've got a, we've got a, a private um, museum as well so open this these doors are a bit heavy coming through if people can stop for two hours I think it does it does the place justice do you need people to book in no, advance? we don't. I, I, most places use use booking systems. We we've resisted, adamantly resisted, to to do a booking system, and we have no booking system whatsoever. So just turn up. People turn up. So you turn up whenever you turn up. You come in and you enjoy yourself, and we we try to make it as as easy and as relaxed uh, a visit that that we can. Penny was at Dunrobin Castle with Scott Morrison and as Scott mentioned you don't need to book ahead but if you want to find out more just go and look up dunrobincastle.co.uk. 
It is also worth mentioning that if you're travelling by train, you can get off at Dunrobin Castle Railway Station. The station is only in operation during the months the castle is open to the public, but if you get a chance to stop by at Dunrobin, however you travel there, you are in for a serious treat. When people come to Goldspear, they've driven through it over the years, you know, the castle is tucked in off the side there, the beach is kind of tucked in off the side there. Now you kind of look at that and you go, it's got one of the best uh, mountain biking courses in the UK. Absolutely. Uh, it's got great walks, it's got a beautiful beach, it's got this stunning castle, it's now got uh, great food and drink on its doorstep. It has got absolutely everything to make it the outdoor and kind of cultural capital of the North East Highlands. I, I, I'm just so excited to be there. All we there. need now to add to that is great music. So at McGregor's, <laughs> thanks for the perfect setup for that, Bruce. At McGregor's here in Gosby, um, how do people find out about what's on when? Um, are you going to be having regular sessions like you yeah. do down the road? Yeah, the, the plan is we've already spoken to quite a few of the local musicians who live in and around there. We've got a great piano that we got in. It was one of the first things. I think a piano is the kind of heart of a bar. Uh, if you're going to be a music bar, you've got to have a good in-tune piano, which is available to anyone to play. Um, so we are going to, the, the local school teachers who are doing the music there have been in already. So they're going to get the kids in. There's a fish there that we're going to work with and try and do stuff with, uh, try and get all the kids playing regularly, maybe a Saturday afternoon session. Um, and then we've got musicians from all around the, the, the rest of the North East Highlands to be able to come in and, and play. So, is, is there a website where we it's, can find yeah. out what's happening when? It's McGregor'sGolfSpeak.com and it's on Facebook as well and uh, Instagram and all the usual kind of things. So. It sounds absolutely wonderful. Bruce, thank you so much for giving us a tour of the place today. I can't wait to come back and, and listen to it and taste it when, when over the summer. But we've talked about tasting the whiskey, we've heard about accents and music, and you've got your fiddle here with us. Yes. Can we get a tune? Yes, absolutely. Well, I've got a wee tune. This is a, a, a tune taken from uh, the Sky Collection of the best reels and strathspeys, uh, collected by Keith Norman MacDonald. This came out, I think, in the 1880s or something like that, I think it was. And there's a little tune here called uh, The Lads of Tain. So we'll start with that, and then I'll see what happens afterwards. Well, just before Bruce plays us out, big thanks to everyone who's made us so welcome at Kleinleash Distillery in Brora, Dunrobin Castle, just north of Golsby, and at Glassdorm in Tane. There's loads more to do in this part of the country, so do go and check out the North Coast 500 website, download the app, and get more inspiration and information there. Very much hope we've persuaded you to pause, make the most of this fab part of the route. For now, though, from Dan, from me, and from Bruce, who's about to play us out, we'll catch you next time.
North Coast 500 podcast is an adventurous audio limited production for the North Coast 500 limited.